Today's scripture is from Acts 4, 32 through 37. If you're using the Bible in front of you in the pew, that is on page 912. Once again, that's Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Thank you, Chris. And thanks to Eric and team, and thanks, John. Where did you get your coffee this morning? (laughs) It's probably not accessible to us here. But good morning, church. Good to be gathered together again this morning to seek God's voice, to hear from Him through His Word. Well, it's been said that men think about something every seven seconds. Doubtful. Most of us are quite sure that men's minds are empty most of the time. Actually, recent studies confirm that for both men and women, the most common thought is money. Nearly one out of four respondents responded that they thought about money more than any other subject. No other response was as high. Not too far into second place was work, likely related to money in many cases. But you already probably knew I was going to say something like that after the scripture we just heard read. You're already thinking about it. You just don't want me to preach on it. Most respondents indicated across the board that they would think about money or, and or work at least three to four times an hour. So if we don't count the sleeping hours, doing some quick math, depending on how much you sleep or how much you dream, you're probably dreaming about money and work also, somewhere around 50 to 70 times a day. How often do we think about Jesus? How many times an hour do we think about the kingdom of heaven? How many times a day do we think about ways to give away our money? You know, this sermon series that we've been in, it almost was a core convictions series, but felt led to preach through the story of the early church where we find all of our core convictions modeled by the early church. All ten are online if you want to see them, and we're really going to hit every one of them. Especially in these first six chapters, we see the early church modeling convictions, living that out. And it's where we as an alliance family and we as a church have drawn our convictions that we hope will shape us, we hope will grow into, uh, because some convictions are held and some are aspirational as we strive for greater alignment with God's Word. 
Last week, we looked at one of them, all things by prayer. And certainly we'll see that one again and again in Acts. This morning's sermon title is another, All We Have Belongs to God. This conviction is more about, it's more than about money or our possessions, although this sermon will somewhat focus on that. A few weeks ago, I preached on stewardship as a much broader theme of how we receive, recognize we receive all things from God, how we steward them. And that goes far beyond just our treasures, but certainly our time, our talents. If you're a parent, then the children that God has entrusted into your care for a time. So it goes much broader, but to focus in, because we do see radical generosity when it comes to the giving of resources, the giving of money to bless those and, and serve those in need. We see that on display right here in Acts 4. You know, if we read this as some form of communism or socialism, we read it wrongly. All they had did not belong to one another. All they had belonged to God. That was the conviction they were under that resulted in this radical generosity we see. God had given them so much, things that money can never buy. Life, salvation, hope, joy, purpose, even power. Above all, he gave himself, his very presence with them in Jesus and now in the Holy Spirit. This early church was experiencing great power and great grace. Verse 33 With great power, the apostles are giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and with great grace, it was upon them all. This is the reason for their radical generosity. They're preaching not for themselves, they're conduits for a power not of themselves, and they're experiencing a grace greater than themselves. No wonder they are freely giving generously earthly things. If we don't begin here, then, you know, with what, who Jesus is and what he has done, then our giving, if we give, would be, merely be a regulation, not the result of a relationship. And so keep that, hold that, please, in mind as we consider this radical generosity and ask ourselves, how does it compare? It's not that we struggle to understand generosity. Do I need to read the scripture again? We fail to apply it. It's not complex, though it's difficult to live. So why the disconnect? Perhaps we don't struggle with comprehending generosity. We struggle to comprehend grace purpose, mission. We have been shown the same great grace of Christ that the early church received. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're under the same great grace. The reason that they gave like they gave, it's not because the Holy Spirit had shaken the walls. You read the passage right before this one in Acts 4. They were all together praying, seeking Him, and the Holy Spirit shook 
the walls of the place that they were gathered in. The reason they lived as they did, the reason they gave as they did, was not because the walls had shaken, it's because God was continually shaking their hearts. The outward signs were indicative of something greater spiritually that was taking place. So we can wrongly find ourselves thinking, well, well, no wonder the early church lived like we see them live, preached like we see them preached, preached, give like we see them gave. If God were to shake these walls, so would we. The reality is if these walls start shaking right now, every one of us is saying earthquake and running for cover. That's our natural response. And we see throughout Scripture the human response to the supernatural. A couple examples. When God spoke from heaven, John 12, those who heard it, many of them said it thundered. They look for a natural reason to the supernatural. Earlier in Acts chapter 2, when the 120 are speaking in tongues, tongues of languages that others heard and recognized, though they were unlearned men and women. Many in the crowd said, oh, they're drunk. It's nine in the morning, but they're drunk. Looking for a natural reason to explain the supernatural. When the lame man, right here from Acts 3 and 4, the lame man who'd been at that gate begging for alms for decades, when he's now standing in front of them and they could not deny it, still the leaders dismiss it. So simply because a supernatural event occurs does not lead to transformation. Not necessarily. Now let's continue to be people who pray, Lord, if you want to shake these walls, so be it. But what we really need is for you to shake our hearts. Stir our hearts. Move us, Lord. This last Tuesday morning, early, 12 men gathered to pray a similar prayer. This one out of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.14, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The 12 of us praying something similar. Lord, awaken in us what might be dormant. Stir in us, because we want you to shine on us, but stir in us what might be sleeping. Waken us to your spirit, your presence, your will, your word. I was greatly encouraged. I know many more of you are invited and could be there and have indicated that you'd like to join us, albeit 6.30 a.m. on a Tuesday. But awake, O sleeper. Rise. Arise, and Christ will shine on you. By the way, Jesus started with 12.2. Good place to begin. If our generosity, speaking of generosity, is conditional to God shaking the walls or showing himself in some supernatural way, then we miss the opportunity to walk by faith. To take God at his word and live by it. It's a good prayer to pray, Lord, stir us, shake us, shake my heart, change my heart, awaken us, all good prayers. But we too have responsibility, if not ability, to change our own hearts. According to Jesus, in a passage I read last week, Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, hear that, there your heart will be also. According to Jesus, we have actionable work with what we do with our treasures. And that probably does extend beyond just money. But in our current culture, that dollar figure, that number, even if it's a figment on a computer screen, let alone, it's attached to treasure. Where we put our treasure is essentially, according to Jesus, where we put our heart, where we choose to place our heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If we continue to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, all the while praying, God, stir our hearts, change our hearts, shake us, Lord, we may be waiting for a long time. Jesus said to the rich young man, Go, go and sell everything you have, then come follow me. He didn't say that to everyone who came to him. But he knew this man's heart. He knew where his treasure was. Many of us will walk out these doors in a similar posture as this rich man. Walking away from an invitation to have Jesus as our treasure. But more importantly for him to have us. What should we do? How, how do we apply the radical generosity we see in the early church? How are we supposed to do this? Are we, are we supposed to sell property, homes, investments, and bring all of the proceeds to the church to distribute to those in need? Is this... Here's a question we've been asking continuously through this series. Is this prescription or is this description? You know the difference. Prescription are God's commands to us, his word for all, for all who would follow him. He prescribes the truth. Or is it description? Because we have much description in scripture. Describes what happened, not necessarily what always happens. Is this prescription or description? Probably the most common prayer in the room right now is, Lord, let this be description. It is. It is description. But wait. What it's describing, what Luke is describing in Acts is the normal Christian life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, well-known preacher, Westminster Chapel, author, he said, this is the genuine Christian life. This is what's being written by Luke. And from Luke's perspective, this was it. Jesus has come, lived, died, risen, ascended. The Holy Spirit has come upon his people, and this is what happened. There was no other for Luke for the apostles, for the early church. This was life. So while we rightly read it as description, we look for the links to say, so what is normative? What should be normative for us even today who live in the same train, the same inheritance as these 
saints, our first brothers and sisters in Christ. If Acts shows us the normal Christian life, when we compare our own experience today, why doesn't it sink? Why are we quicker to assume, well, God simply does not work in that same way? He must not. Why are we not quicker to assume, I need to get my acts together? You see what I did there? Last week, we also asked, what would it look like to return to New Testament power and priorities? What would it look like? It would mean praying like they prayed. It would mean being unified in one accord as they were, worshiping the sovereignty of God. It would mean trusting in His Word and living by His promise. It would mean asking for boldness to preach the gospel. It would be asking for perseverance to endure opposition. It would be living with an urgency that the time is short and that Christ is returning to both rule and to judge. It would mean, by the way, are there head nods and amens in that list? But what about giving like they gave? Sounds like crickets. A.W. Tozer said, It is the church that is willing to die to worldly standards that will know the power of Christ's resurrection. We must no longer be gripped by the American dream, but by the kingdom of God. Jesus said in that same sermon, just a few verses later, Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things, these earthly things that we worry or consume ourselves with or pursue, all those things will be added to you as well. God will take care of all of those things. Seek first His kingdom. Now certainly I could say much on these topics because God's Word says much on these topics. Around 800 references or so on money, possession, stewardship, generosity. By some estimates, nearly 25% of all Jesus' recorded teaching has to do with our treasures, money, our stewardship. Why? Because he's after our hearts. And he knows that where our treasure is, there our heart will be. I was sharing with a few of you this morning. I got to meet a few of you as guests. I'm committed to preach the themes of God. This one particularly, I'm committed to preach when we run square into it. So if you are a guest with us and you say, yeah, see, there it is. It's, it's about money again. It's about giving. Shake the bag. Pass it again. Grab the stick. No, that's not true. Just one out of four times. Be thankful this isn't an 800-part sermon. We saw a glimpse of this in Acts 2, this radical generosity, each one sharing life and his resources with one another. And they weren't under a compulsion They weren't under a command at this point. They were living with a conviction. Big difference. And so they gave cheerfully. Paul would later write on this concept, 2 Corinthians 
chapter 9, verse 7 and following. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is just one area of what it looks like when Christ has our heart. By the way, tangent, I said this last time we hit this concept in chapter 2. Don't you wish our government would take a page from 2 Corinthians chapter 9? Just pray. Just pray about what you feel is right to give and give to the IRS and do so cheerfully. And we would, wouldn't we? And we laugh because we do the same thing in the church. This really is a simple concept. The early church truly believed all they had belonged to God. Everything that he had entrusted to them was theirs to steward. And they truly believed that they were all rich in Christ. Some of them were rich by worldly standards. Being rich is not wrong. This is not a poverty gospel. Some of the most faithful servants of Christ were wealthy, rich by earthly standards. You can be righteous and rich or unrighteous and rich. You can be righteous and poor or unrighteous and poor. What matters is not how much you've been given, but how you steward it. To he who has been entrusted much, much will be demanded. Him that is faithful with a little more will be given. These are the principles and the promises that guide us. But Jesus did warn those who are rich. Matthew 19, 23, he said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then he uses an analogy that I don't want to distract us with. But it is hard. It's hard for a rich man because it's hard when your treasure is somewhere other than in Christ and his kingdom. And we are rich. By comparison, we are filthy rich. Just take, consider this, because I know there's a spectrum, even gather in the room today. But if you were able to come today, unless you lived two doors down, you probably didn't walk, and you didn't even think about it. If you live in a dwelling place that was built not by you, if you turned a faucet and clean, drinkable water just flowed out, if you had a choice of which clothes to wear this morning, and some of you stood and tried to figure it out, and even changed a couple times to figure out what would match best, and which shoes that sit there in your closet would go with them. My wife's not here. Pray for her and my son. He's battling the flu. I do appreciate the prayers. And so I didn't ask her permission, but we are abundantly rich if you look at our closet. And I know the choices are hard. And I said the other day, and this was this grace and peace, forgiveness. I said it wouldn't be hard if you had one pair of clothes. She won't listen to this online anyway, so it'll be up to you to pass that on to her. We need perspective. We need reminders. 
And if any of those, if any of those are true, let alone all of them, you are richer than the majority of this world. And for many, if not most in this room, your last paycheck is more than three billion people in our world will make in a year. But we are rich, financially, materially. And I pray that we recognize we are rich in things that matter far greater. The problem is with our, our wealth, we see it as relative because of the culture that we are in. The culture that continues to esteem wealth and riches and attaches it to success and to happiness and, and that's, that showcases it. Unknown, really, in the history of the world. We see everyone else's wealth so that we can measure ourselves up against it. And when you start to see it, I don't know if you've ever walked through the street of dreams. Now you can do so virtually. But you start to think crazy thoughts like, I don't have a hidden staircase that leads to a cigar room. I must be poor. (laughs) My, My cat doesn't yet have a diamond studded collar. And I don't yet own an island. I must be poor. And now I'm unhappy. Printed on the almighty American dollar is in God we trust. No surprise there's a growing demand to remove it. The American dream almost demands it today. It would be easier just to replace God with the word this. What must we do to live freely? Truly free. According to Jesus, there's only one way. We live generously. We steward. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich in this present age, as for you, as for me, Timothy, charge them not to be haughty. You have to look it up. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Charge them. Do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They are fleeting. But set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And teach them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that, don't miss this, so that in this, in this generosity, in this stewardship, in this joy of giving, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Bearing and sharing, diverse fruit, in that taking hold of what is truly life. Jim Elliot, maybe his most well-known simple quote is, he is no fool who gives what he can never keep to gain what he can never lose. So this really is a faith issue, not a money issue. And I think the early church truly believed the promises of God. They believed life was short. They believed Jesus was coming back soon. They believed every earthly treasure would fade, rot, rust, burn. But more than that, they'd been with Jesus. They'd heard his teaching and his promises, and now they were coming to see that every one of them was coming true. Every one of them was being fulfilled. 
their faith was building in all things. So that when Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive, they believed him. When Jesus said, this, this earth is not your home. Don't store up treasures here. Store them eternally. He, they believed him. So what's happened to us? Do we believe God's word? It's a faith issue. Ecclesiastes 5.10. The wealthiest man alive in his day, some estimate that Solomon was wealthier by percentage than any man who has ever lived in history. Difficult to prove, I know. Needless to say, he had no concern for earthly things. He had everything. He said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. It's fleeting. It's a mist. And we say, nah, that's, that's good advice. Should be a, that's something to be aware of and ponder, but that's not truth. Let me ask you this. Why is Jeff Bezos still working? You can take it a couple different directions, right? There must be more to life than money. Or else, money doesn't satisfy. So, go either direction. I know, if you're like me, you'll probably go to the, well, let's swap bank accounts and I'll show you what it's like to be satisfied. And I'd wager that our own life proves we're no different, likely on a smaller scale, likely not with the billions, but consider this, for most of us in the room, five years ago, we had in mind something that if we had it or if we were in that position, we would be happy, at least more satisfied than today. And now, because of the abundance of wealth that we have, many of you have that thing or that position, be it a bigger house, a better house, a better location, a nicer car, a better car, a more efficient car. A better job, a better career path. Whatever that thing was or that picture was, you have it, and what has replaced it? And I'd wager that something else has replaced it. That is your new pursuit, and this might be very subtle. It might not be pinned on your wall where you essentially pray to it and worship it every day. It might be a subtle roaming thought. If I could just, if in just a few years I, if we would, so this kind of living is either insanity or it is foolishness. The only other option according to Christ, the one true option, is stewardship, is believing God's word, that all we have belongs to him, and living like we believe it, believing that Jesus came to give life and life to the full, believing that when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all other things will be given to us as well, believing that when we give generously, 
we actually take hold of that which is truly life. Believing that as we give, we become more like God, the greatest giver. Believing that as we steward, we become more like Christ, the greatest steward. Believing that we're actually made in the image of God and therefore to give because God gave all. He is our treasure. He's our master. He's our standard. Back to that same sermon by Jesus. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What Jesus is saying is there's two options. You can worship earthly treasures, or you can worship God as your treasure. And it cannot be both. And there's been much speculation around this concept of storing up treasures in heaven. And what does that mean? And will we even need, who, who needs treasures in heaven? Isn't heaven the treasure? Talk amongst yourselves this week. But what I do know is that what happens on earth impacts eternity. What we do today matters. How we live matters. That's proven again and again through the teachings of the Word. So what do we do with this? You probably want nuts and bolts. And that's, I, I always hold up short here, guys, and I want to be faithful to God's Word. Because there's a right response from God's people when they hear His Word to say, what must we do? That's an open heart. But it can also be a religious heart. The checkbook can open. You can say, just what? Tell me. Give me that number. So I can do that, be at peace, and walk out this door. But not if you're at peace with me or a man or a church. You must be at peace with God. And so this isn't about a number. It's about the heart. It's not about a percentage it's about generosity. What, what percent generous do you want to be? What percent blessed do you want to be? What percent free do you want to be? What percent of God's heart do you want to have? What percent of your heart do you want Him to have? See, we, 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 can't, we can't find a number. We're pursuing a person. And if God, we're called to be imitators of God and He's given all, then we fall short no matter what. And we're under his grace. But we rightly read passages like this, and if we have some concept of other generosity that we see in Scripture, should, should we give like Barnabas? He was exemplary. He was called out for selling a home and bringing it all. Not everyone did that. Barnabas was esteemed. He probably had the gift of giving, as some of you do. And others of us wrestle Confession, I've written a check, torn it up, and rewritten a lower number. Because I looked at the number, and I thought, what I might be able to buy. Or, do we do what Paul says and simply pray? Hey, pray about what you should give. And take him completely out of context. Paul assumes that you're already tithing. God's people always tithed. In fact, everything, there was so much in a, a, above a tithe, a tenth. 
that he's assuming they're actually givers and then saying, pray. And don't try to hit a, a specific number. Pray about how, how to steward and give cheerfully. He's already saying giving abundance. And we can take that and say, oh, I'll pray and I'm not really compelled to give and give nothing. Or do we simply tithe? Okay, give me a tenth, show me my gross, I'll look at the check and I'll just write the tithe. No, it's not about a number. It's about the heart. So we pray and pursue the heart of God that he might have all of our heart. And I know to be personal and share some of the convictions that Catherine and I are under as we pray. Here's some of the convictions. We don't want to give God what is equivalent to a bad tip in our culture. I just, I just don't like it. I loathe giving the government more than I give to God's work. So far, I haven't been able to meet that number consistently. I loathe it. And I also know, we also know, that if it doesn't require sacrifice or change, then it's not generous. It's not sacrificial giving. And so while we often have a repeating gift through our bank, praise God, so we don't forget, sometimes we don't even notice. Some of you could begin tithing, you don't, but you could begin with the 10th and you wouldn't change a thing. You wouldn't need to change anything how much God has given to you. Some of you, if you were to begin tithing, that would be radical generosity because you give nothing to God's work. And there would be change. Again, it's not about a number. We've also been under the conviction that we should begin with a tithe. Jesus affirms, Matthew 23, 23, that it was good to tithe to God's work. There is freedom. We are now free, not under compulsion. We are free to give. It's actually more of an invitation. But I don't want to miss anything that Jesus affirms as good. So we try to begin there and we pray about the other stuff. How much more, Lord? When? And in this season, seasons change. Numbers change. We seek the Lord's heart. If you don't firmly have convictions in how to steward and how to give toward God's work, because there's many awesome opportunities to give in our culture that aren't directly linked with God's work. And we may pray over those as well. You can borrow our convictions, but I would encourage you to pray together as a family or as an individual. Lord, convict my heart. I want you to have all of my heart. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. By the way, as a church, this is our conviction. This is how I've been convicted to lead us. We tithe as a church. Everything that comes in to our general fund, from, right from the top, we give 10% to the Alliance work because we believe in it. It's good work. Locally, through church planting, regionally and nationally to support the broader fields that we get connected with, and globally to the work to the ends of the earth to support our missionaries, our 700 missionaries that are in over 70 countries. We tithe. So if you just give to Union Hill Church, we're already, you're already also tithing out of these walls. But by God's grace, I believe every year of the last eight, we've given somewhat, somewhere near 20% out of these walls because we tithe and then we pray about what does generosity look like in this season, Lord? 
We are called to steward what you've entrusted us here, but man, you've blessed us abundantly. How do we give to those in need? Right here, across the street, in our region, and to the ends of the earth. And I love continuing to pray through that exercise. And guess what? God seems to continue to give to that. And even when things get lean, we lean up other areas, not the tithe. Thank you for your generosity to allow us to engage in that, to allow me to preach on this kind of a, this kind of a sermon without ringing a bell. We are sound financially as a church because of you. I wouldn't say we're operating in dream mode. I hope you have dreams too. God, God, I want to be faithful, and that's not going to change. Help me grow in generosity. And I have dreams for what I could do if you gave me more. If you're faithful for a little, you'd be entrusted with more. We have, we have dreams. There's so much more we could do here and out there. I wouldn't say we're operating there. I think if everyone who's part of this family was tithing, we would be operating in dream mode. That's just my belief. I think God has opened the floodgates to many of you. Some of you are guests, are passing through, are coming, are in town visiting. In fact, all of this isn't for this offering bag that passes through. This is for your heart. We, we don't need more money. That's a risky thing to say as a lead pastor to a congregation. I hope we can steward more. But your conviction may not be to write the check here. Where is God at work? We heard stories from John. Where is God at work? I believe Scripture calls us, Matthew 3, or Malachi 3, verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. This is to support the work of God in the temple, so different, different culture. But bring it, and, but the heart of God hasn't changed. And what he says is pretty powerful because he says nothing like this anywhere else in Scripture. Thereby put me to the test, he said. Nowhere else are we told to test him. This is his word. Put me to the test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there's no more need. As if they needed that reminder. Forty days in the wilderness and it rained bread. Quail came in at night. God has always proven himself to abundantly provide and care for the needs of his people. Put me to, you can't outgive God. Trust me with the tithe, the tenth, and I've got you. Different time, different culture. The work of God looked different in that time. But the heart of God has not changed. It does not change. And his desire for your heart and mine has not changed. What I know is not only will he provide in abundance according to his promise, but things that money can never buy, hope, joy, love, peace, purpose, presence, perhaps great power and great grace would be known. I'll end with this. I ended with it a couple weeks ago. Questions. Where are the signs and wonders today? Where are the healings and the miracles why aren't the walls being shaken? Where is the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit in the church? Yes, we should ask those questions. But we also need to be asking to be faithful to God's word. Where is the true fellowship? Where is the devotion to his word and to prayer? Where is the urgency to reach lost people and the boldness to preach the gospel? Where is the anticipation, expectation, and hope of Christ's return 
Where is the radical generosity? We need to be asking all of those questions. They are linked, and I think tightly. The promises of God have not weakened. The presence of the Spirit has not waned, but the position of our heart has perhaps wandered. The invitation and the opportunity remains. Make Him your treasure. Come to know the riches of His great grace. Here's my prayer. I haven't said it with you for a few weeks, but this is my prayer weekly throughout this series. Paul's words, Ephesians 1.16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, so that you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And hear this. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Why do I preach like this? Because I love you. I want you to know wisdom. I want you to be full of joy. I want you to live freely and in victory. I want you to be satisfied in Christ alone. Make him your treasure.